0: Thanks to our readers. Hey, everyone. Hope you've recovered well from our weekend away. Invest last weekend. It's been um, kind of... Oh, we've got a little bit of feedback there. Thanks, Ryan. Thankful for our sound, guys. I hope uh, you've not had too hard a time going back into real life after the great joy of a weekend spent away together. But now let's um, let's do what we always do. Come to God's Word and explore it and see uh, how it applies to our lives. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank and praise you again for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he died and rose again, and that he appeared to his disciples. And we thank you that we have now time to, to look at their eyewitness testimony and consider it for ourselves. Father, please help us to understand our Lord Jesus more, and live for him. We pray in his name. Amen. Is there anything that's changed the world more than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Has anything like this ever happened in the world that has then gone on to shape the world so much so? Has anything shaped more people of the world, more of history, more of culture, than the fact that 2,000 years ago, a man who was murdered didn't stay dead, but instead rose never to die again is there any more earth-shattering life-changing and world-changing event jesus resurrection has changed our world hasn't it because he rose again the gospel message went out into the world and it changed people it changed nations it changed cultures it influences our nation even to this day more than anything else in history Jesus' resurrection changes everything, doesn't it? And over the last few weeks, we've seen the reality of Jesus' resurrection in John's gospel, haven't we? Do you remember, right back uh, a couple of chapters ago, chapter 19, we saw the brutal yet amazing death of our Lord Jesus as he went to the cross for us. And then John 20, which we've seen over the last few weeks, to the disciples of bewilderment, the tomb is empty on Sunday morning. Jesus appears to Mary at the tomb and then later that day appears in a room that was locked to all the disciples. A week later, Jesus does the exact same thing, just appears out of nowhere, and it seems it's just for the benefit of doubting Thomas. We thought about him last week. Jesus says to him, touch me and see, I'm flesh and blood. Look at my scars. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. And then at what seems to be the high point of the gospel with the risen Jesus standing there before them, Thomas declares these profound and famous words, Jesus, you're my Lord and God. And at this point, John has to break away from the story and add his own comments. Look at John 20 verse 30 again. We saw it last week. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these, these miracles, these events, most of all his resurrection, these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, have life in his name. Like Jesus, John says, don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Look at who Jesus is. Look what he has done and believe. Have life, eternal life, life to the full In his name. And at this point, John could have ended his gospel, couldn't he? Seems like a good place to end, doesn't it? The high point of the story, the resolution, Jesus is risen, he's appeared to his disciples, he's won eternal life, he's defeated death, he's proven that he's alive from the dead. Believe in him, John says. But John doesn't finish there, does he? No, instead we have chapter 21, this kind of obscure chapter of john's gospel where jesus says and does things that if we're really honest seem a little bit weird it kind of feels like this chapter is out of place maybe like these stories were tacked on the end at another point well i think you'll be pleased to know that i don't think that's the case that actually john added these last chapters because he wants to tell us more about jesus And we're going to see this week and next week, why John chooses to finish his gospel in this way. So let's look at the first half of this obscure chapter together. Let's see what it tells us. And it's no surprise, I think, that the obscure chapter starts in an obscure way. Let's look at verse 1 together. Let's start there. Please have your Bibles open. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. John doesn't tell us how much later these events happened, but we know that Jesus was around for 40 days after he was risen, before he ascended into heaven. So it's some time in those 40 days. And the disciples, well, they're back in Galilee now, aren't they? Did you notice? They're not in Jerusalem anymore. They're back by the Sea of Tiberias or Galilee, perhaps in their hometown of Capernaum. But what John really wants to stress is that Jesus revealed himself. He says it twice. And in a sense, he could just be saying Jesus physically revealed himself as alive from the dead. Yet again, he is risen. But perhaps we'll see that Jesus has more to reveal. That he has something about himself and something that he wants his disciples to do. That's what he wants to reveal. Well, John jumps straight into the story and it starts obscurely. It's a little bit strange. Look at verse 2. I love this. Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, and two other his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. It's weird, isn't it? Why are the disciples going fishing? Their Lord has just died and risen again. He's appeared to them. He's proved that he is risen And now here they are just going on about normal life, just going fishing. Anyone want to come? Now, maybe they needed to go fishing. Maybe we should give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they needed food to eat. Maybe they needed some fish to sell and earn a bit of money. But I just can't help but think, are they missing the point? The point of what Jesus wanted them to do. Are they going back to their old way of life, being fishermen like they were back when Jesus first called them when jesus first met them are they distracted have they forgotten about god's kingdom and are they focused on this life are they like us (laughs) don't we regularly forget the things that jesus wants us to do and say and live well whatever their motives the disciples clearly get more than they bargained for on this fishing trip don't they unfortunately first of all verse three look there they catch nothing that night. And Then they have a surprise visitor. So have a look with me. Let's go into the second part of the passage from verse 4. Picture it with me. The sun is starting to break over the horizon. The sky is being lit with the morning light and new color. The lake and the shore start to become more visible as the daylight increases. They glisten. And the disciples, well, they think they can see a man on the beach. They think it's a man. That's what they can see from a distance. It's actually Jesus, but they have no idea who he is at this point. Perhaps he's too far away to recognize. And even when this man calls out to them, when he speaks, they still don't recognize him. Look with me at verse 5 Jesus shouts across the water, Men, you don't have any fish, do you? Now, I'm sure Jesus knows the answer to his own question. But the disciples, they just think he's asking a genuine question. Did this man want to buy some of their fish? Was he a really good fisherman from the the local area? Was he making friendly conversation? So they shout back across the water. No. The man on the shore shouts shouts back. Verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Who knows why, but the disciples do what he says. No questions asked. They hadn't caught anything all night long. And so maybe they thought, hey, look, we'll just try anything at this point. Or maybe they thought, yeah, look, this guy must know what he's talking about. Maybe he's a local. Then verse 6, the miraculous happens. So the disciples did what he said, and they were unable to haul it in because of a large number of fish. It would have been a scene to behold in the quietness and stillness of the early morning suddenly a rush of fish stirs up the water the net is being filled as fish just pile on into that net and then the disciples what do they do well they're frantically trying to pull in the net straining and striving with no success it's a little bit comical isn't it now they know i think that this guy on the beach He's not just giving good fishing advice. This is Jesus, yet again, showing his authority. Authority over the created world. Humanity strives and strains to overcome the animal world, the plant world. And we fail on a regular basis. Jesus commands a net full of fish, get in. And they do. Just like that. It's worth pausing and being amazed, isn't it? Jesus is the one with authority over all creation, over everything, over even death itself, as he stands there, risen from the dead. He's our Lord, the one with authority. Why would you want to follow anyone else? And it seems that John, he knows that this man is not just a good fisherman with good fishing advice. Look at verse 7. Therefore, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. This miracle was enough for John. He realizes, he recognizes this is Jesus. Perhaps John is the clever one of the bunch, but Peter, he's the zealous one, isn't he? Maybe not always terribly smart. But definitely zealous. Have a look at uh, verse 7 again. As soon as Peter hears that this man on the shore is Jesus, what does he do? He wraps his cloak around him, he plunges himself into the water, and tries to race the boat back to shore to get to Jesus first. Doesn't that sound similar to when Jesus is, comes out walking on the water in Matthew chapter 14? What does Peter do? He says, Lord, if it's you, let me come out and walk on the water. And then he does. Peter is always the eager beaver. And I think he's an example to us in this. You know, Peter might be a little hasty sometimes. He's the first to speak. He's the first to jump in the water. But his zeal for Jesus, to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, isn't that worth imitating? Perhaps we modern Christians are a little too conservative when it comes to walking and following Jesus these days? A little too slow to act, a little too timid. Don't we need Peter's zeal? His readiness to follow Jesus with boldness in that moment when it presents itself. How often do we shy away from the difficult conversation where Jesus isn't being honored? Or how often do we stay silent when we know there's an opportunity to talk about the gospel? Well, how often do we kind of hang back when we see someone who needs care and love because we think maybe someone else will do it? Yes, you could say we need discernment, but we need the zeal of the Apostle Peter. We need his readiness, his resolve to take action for Jesus when that moment presents itself. But let's get back to the story. In verse 8, the disciples, they get back to the shore. Peter probably got there first, it doesn't say. And the rest of the disciples, they're dragging the net full of fish behind the boat. When they arrive, verse 9, Jesus already has a fire going with fish and bread cooking over it. Maybe it brings you back to the campfire of Invest last week. Good memories. But then verse 10, Jesus says, bring some of the fish you've just caught. As if it was the disciples who really caught them. Let's be honest, it was Jesus. And again, zealous Peter, he's the first one to act. He goes and drags the net full of fish over. Look at verse 11. The net was full of large fish. 153 of them. Now some people see some kind of symbolic meaning in the number of fish. It's just meant to show that there was a lot of fish. Big fish. And that the catch of fish was miraculous. That Jesus is the one who provided it look at the end of verse 7 even though there were so many fish the net was not torn jesus is in control here he told the fish to get in the net he held the net together so that it did not tear. he has authority over his creation this is his catch of fish And then in the last part of the passage, come with me there. It's this wonderful, short little description of breakfast with Jesus. And it's a beautiful moment. Come with me, just to the last few verses. Look at verse 12. Jesus, their risen Lord, invites them to eat with him. Come and eat breakfast. I think it would have been a pretty weird experience. Jesus, risen from the dead, just filled your net full of fish, and then says, Come and eat breakfast as if nothing strange had happened at all. But I especially think it would have been strange because there seems to be something different about Jesus' risen body. I wonder if you've noticed that before. Look at verse 12 again. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Often Jesus' disciples, they struggle to recognize him after he's risen. Maybe because it, they just thought it was too good to be true. It can't be him. Maybe their minds were prevented by God from understanding. Or maybe Jesus' body had a different glory about it than it did before. It was still him, but something was different. He was risen. But they knew it was Jesus. Who else could do what he had just done? Who else would approach them like this? It was their risen Lord. And then verse 13, Jesus serves breakfast to his disciples. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. And at one level, I think this story, it's just simply Jesus revealing himself again to his disciples, physically. Showing and proving that he is truly risen. John adds this comment in verse 14. This was now the third time. Jesus appeared, or literally was revealed, to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus is saying to his disciples one more time, I truly am raised from the dead. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. But I actually think he's saying more than this. Because it seems to me, and maybe you thought this as we were reading it before too, it seems to me that there are great similarities to some other passages in the Gospels. Some really big similarities that just seem too big to ignore. They can't be a coincidence. Take just this last bit here for, as an example of Jesus cooking and providing, his, providing breakfast for his disciples. It casts our mind back to John chapter 6, way back there. What did Jesus do there? Well, he fed 5, 000, more than 5,000 people miraculously with bread bread and fish. He miraculously provided for them and then Jesus explained his miracle. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the one who gives spiritual nourishment, eternal life. And so as Jesus reveals himself again here in John 21, he's showing his disciples yet again, reminding them, I am the bread of life. I am the one who gives spiritual nourishment. I am risen and I have the gift of eternal life. For all who come to me. Praise Jesus for his provision for the gift of eternal life. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer, he says. But there's another passage that sits in the background of this passage. We're now zooming out to think about this whole passage as a whole. Because there's another passage in the Gospels where Jesus causes a miraculous catch of fish. Do you know it? It's right back in Luke chapter 5, and it's way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Way back when Jesus first called his disciples. The disciples, they'd been fishing all night long and caught nothing. Sound familiar? And so Jesus told them, drop your nets into deep water. Sound familiar? They did what Jesus said, and what happened? Fish filled the net to overflowing. Sound familiar? And after this miracle, Jesus said to Peter, don't be afraid, from now on you will fish for men. So, right at the back, right back at the beginning, Jesus uh, caused a miraculous catch of fish. Now, right here, at the end of John's Gospel, we have Jesus causing miraculous catch of fish. Now, we need to be careful whenever we read the Bible that we're not reading things into the text that aren't really there. We shouldn't seek out symbolic meanings behind the plain words of Scripture if they're not there to be found. But here in this chapter, I just can't help but think this passage is so similar to Luke 5 that Jesus must have intended a symbolic meaning, that Jesus wanted to do an enacted parable for them to understand a lesson. He wanted to show his disciples what... That through his word, through his power, through his authority, that they would go out into the world and not get a great catch of fish, but a great catch of people. People for the kingdom of God. That they would go and fish for men, women and children to come to faith in Jesus and be added to his kingdom. He wanted to show his disciples that they shouldn't be on about fishing. Perhaps there's a gentle rebuke here from Jesus. Don't go back to fishing, guys. That's your old way of life. You were fishermen before I called you. Now I've called you to a new life, a new life of fishing for men, of telling people about me so that they might enter my kingdom, so that they might have faith and be saved. And it seems to fit with what we see in the passage next week. We'll spend good time looking at it next week. Jesus restores Peter and commissions him for gospel ministry, for fishing for men or shepherding sheep. He changes the metaphor just to confuse us a little bit. But here in this passage, don't we have Jesus revealing himself? Yes, revealing himself physically, showing the disciples, I am truly risen from the dead. Believe. But we also see him revealing something else, what he wants for his disciples. We see he is the one in charge of his mission. He is the one who is sending his disciples to be witnesses, to call many people to faith in his kingdom so that the nets will be full. God's kingdom will be full. And so I think with a passage like this, our response here is actually quite similar to those early disciples who saw Jesus risen. It's confidence. Jesus is instilling confidence in his disciples then and now. He has given his disciples everything they need to be part of his mission. He's revealed himself as risen from the dead. He is the Lord of the mission. He has sent out his disciples to fish for men. The fact that Jesus has risen, has revealed himself to eyewitnesses, this is what makes mission possible. It's what makes mission necessary. Jesus' disciples must go and preach the gospel, must fish for men, must proclaim the message that he died and now is risen, that he is the bread of life who gives eternal life to all who come to him. Just like the disciples, Jesus has given us everything we need to go out into the world and tell the gospel. We have the eyewitness accounts of Jesus risen from the dead. He proved himself to them, they wrote it down, and we have their trustworthy testimony. Praise God. So how could we go back to fishing? How could we go back to our old lives? To living like Jesus is not actually risen. No, Jesus' resurrection changes everything, doesn't it? It must shape everything in our lives, our whole lives. It changes everything. It opens the doors of God's kingdom. It begins his mission in the world. Jesus' resurrection gives us our purpose in life to live for the growth of his kingdom, to see more and more people hear that good news. Jesus is risen. Believe. Don't be an unbeliever. Now, not all of us will leave our jobs behind and proclaim Jesus full-time like these 11 disciples did, but each of us needs to leave our old way of life behind, don't we? of building our own kingdom and living for ourselves, or just kind of being whatever about the fact that Jesus rose again, defeating death. We need to live for the growth of God's kingdom in our jobs and in our families and in every area of our lives to boldly proclaim Jesus in every opportunity that God gives us, to serve Jesus' mission, to build his church, to live lives of godliness that adorn the gospel. To give joyfully and generously to see the gospel go out into the world. Why? Because Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen, and it changes everything. It's what takes fishermen and makes them fishers of men. It's what gives us confidence, because He has revealed Himself as truly risen from the dead, and sent His disciples out into the world to proclaim it. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you great thanks for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. That he died for our trespasses and that he rose again for our justification. We thank you that because he rose, we have the sure hope of eternal life. We thank you for the eyewitness testimonies of those early disciples, your apostles. We thank you that Jesus revealed himself to them as truly alive from the dead. Amazing as that is. Father, we thank you also that you commissioned, that Jesus commissioned those disciples to go and fish for men, to see men and women and children hear that good news and be saved. Father, please help us to follow in the footsteps of those disciples, to be on about that great mission, that great catch of people, that your nets might be filled, that the kingdom might grow, and that more and more people might find life in Jesus' name.